0: Well, good morning again, and uh, I want to say, uh, again, happy Father's Day to all the, all the dads in the room, uh, and I want to say thank you to everyone for your support, thank you for uh, all your generosity last week that we were able to give over $21,000 to our missions around the world, we're thankful for um, your generosity in that. I wasn't a big fan of your generosity around lap 16, um, but... I'm thankful to those of you who came and, and supported me. I, I told my brother about this. That we had about 20 people who, who showed up to, to watch me run. He's like, why would anybody do that? I, I, I was like, I, I know. I was, I was very surprised myself. I didn't actually, people don't usually go to see people do unathletic things. But uh, it was a, uh, I'm thankful, thankful for, for your support. That was, that was a lot of fun and, and really great. We're continuing our series called Fulfilled where we're thinking about um, the way that I believe Scripture wants us to recognize that God calls us to live a fulfilling life. Not just like off in a distance or, you know, being united with God someday, but understanding that Jesus speaks about like living a fulfilling life now, like in the here and now. And what would it look like for you to understand that like, a fulfilling life, I think, is adhering more and more to really what God calls us to do and who God calls us to be. There's a theologian that is uh, one of my favorite to to read named GK Chesterton and he wrote an observation about 75 years ago about what it was like walking the streets of New York. And it looked a little bit different than now, but here's a picture of what Times Square looks like today. Uh, but it was still the same where there was like neon signs and there was stuff. And so he was looking at all these things and was recognizing like how like, kind of beautiful and, and majestic it was. But he wrote this like, kind of recognition of, well, what would happen if you showed up here, if you're just like plopped down like you're from a deserted island and you knew none of the language and you were just put right into Times Square, what would you think was happening? You probably would think that it's like some big celebration or like a religious festival. And it'd be weird because everybody's just like walking past like it doesn't really matter. But he's talking about like how, how interesting it is that people, if they didn't have the language, they would think that something really majestic, important, and beautiful was happening. But then if you taught them the language, they'd be really disappointed. And here's what he writes about this. He says... It's not true to say that the peasant, the person who wouldn't know what's going on, has never seen such things before. The truth is that he's seen them on a much smaller scale, but for a much larger purpose. The real case against modern society, all the advertisements that are around us all the time, is not that it's vulgar, but rather that it's not worthwhile. Mobs have risen against the Pope. No mobs are likely to rise in defense of Pepsi. Many a poor person has cried or has died saying, Jesus Christ is Lord... It's doubtful whether any man will ever, with his last breath, say the ecstatic words, Try Wrigley's Chewing Gum. (laughs) These are imposed upon us by a rich minority, and we're merely passive to the suggestion. The hypnotist of high finance or big business merely writes his commands in heaven with a finger of fire. I think Chesterton is on to something. That if you think about just the air that we breathe, what is just around us all the time, what we are told sometimes passively, sometimes aggressively, like this is what the good life is, it's easy for us to fall into a certain kind of mindset. And it's easy for us, if we're not careful and like really recognize that our hearts can go in that direction, it's easy for us to start to just subtly think that like, my life is going to be defined by whatever the next best thing is. And what that creates in us, I believe, is kind of a low hum of discontentment. And a mentality that says the grass is always greener, right? That I'm just one step away from fulfillment. I'm just one item away from happiness. And we're tempted to look at all of these things that are around us, telling us what the good life is, and say, okay, I'm going to define myself that once I get to whatever it is, you can fill in the blank with what that is for you. You have this idea in your head, like, this is what is going to make the grass greener. I was reading a book on marriage several years ago, and it said this mentality is, is so dangerous, especially in marriage, because when you are marrying somebody, you, I think, most marriages, like ones that are actually, like, good and hopeful, you know, you, you are marrying that person because you believe that the grass is going to be greener with that person, right? Right? And you believe that your relationship is going to do good in the world and that, you know, like living sacrificially, the vows that you commit to each other, you believe that that relationship is going to matter. It's going to make a difference in your life. It's going to make a difference in that person's life. But then what happens? You enter the relationship, right? It's not just the person's fault. You also are there too. Wherever you go, there you are. Like, just because you're now uh, in this relationship doesn't mean that, like, some of your issues and some of your problems, and actually, oftentimes, it's in those, like, really close relationships that then we realize some of our own problems. When you're around somebody all the time, you realize, like, yeah, I do live a little selfishly sometimes. Yeah, it's kind of annoying that I do that, perhaps. The grass is always greener, but oftentimes, it's us that messes up the green grass, And if we just allow the things to come at us and say, like, this is how I'm going to live a a good life, I think that we have a, a dangerous mentality. And sometimes I think we just need to be encouraged to think a little bit deeper, like, what is a really good life? What really matters to you? We've been basing this series off a question that Jesus asked in Mark chapter 10, verse 51, and it's to a blind beggar, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And Jesus asks, and he says, I want to see, and Jesus ends up granting him this, this request. But I've been shortening that to just have you think about this question, like, what is it that you want? Like, really, what is it, like, deeply that you want in your life? Because I think oftentimes we can think that desire is, just like, not God's idea, but in fact, I think that we see from the very beginning of Scripture that desire is God's idea. Passion is God's idea. In chapter one of the Bible, talking about humanity, God says, be fruitful and multiply. I mean, how do you do that? Doesn't Talk to Grant, he's a doctor. But that's how, how the beginning of Scripture is. That from the very beginning, it's saying, be, be fruitful and multiply. Like, desire is God's idea. Passion is, is God's idea. And oftentimes, I would say that the times that I've screwed up my life the most is when I make a mistake in prioritizing what really I really, really want out of life. And I take like a cheap substitute or a shortcut. And I don't necessarily think about, okay, what is it that I really want? What do I want to have with my life? How do I want to, to be understood? Like what, what is it that I really want out of, that, out of my life? And I think the biggest mistakes that I've made are when I take that quick Shortcut. I haven't watched the the TV series Mad Men, but I uh, was reading in a book, and it had um, this quote from Don Draper, who is um, an advertising expert in the 1960s, and he says, the reason you haven't felt it, he's talking about love, is because it doesn't exist. What you call love was invented by guys like me to sell nylons, and I think that's true. I've never bought nylons personally, but um, I... I know that whatever it is that is out there that people are trying to sell to us, they're, they're telling us, like, this is what love is. And if we understand that love is just whatever is, is taught to us at a certain time, if we don't think about things a little bit more deeply, we don't live into what I believe God is who really truly calling us to be. And again, it's the biggest mistakes of my life that I've made where I've just grabbed for that cheap substitute. Instead of asking myself, what do I truly want? And on Father's Day, like, Fathers, what do you want for your kids? What kind of relationship do you want to have with them someday? And I've seen some people make some really bad trades. I've seen people trade a random night of intimacy for their marriage. I've seen people make trades like working 70 hours a week instead of having relationships with their kids. And it's like you're working so hard for your kids that you don't know your kids. What is it that you really want? Probably helpful if you had coffee and just talked with someone about that because it's easy for us to just kind of just go from thing to thing and be told what it is that we're supposed to want instead of truly asking the deeper question like what is what is my purpose here what do i want to have out of this life one place that i think you you see this is in a story that's somewhat familiar the story of the the kings uh, in the old testament where god basically just allows the people to have what they want um the people of Israel are kind of like that annoying kid who just keeps begging you to do something, and God's like, "All right, finally, you, got, you can have a king." Um, it's, they're like, "Come on, Dad, please, can we have a king?" And then He's like, "All right, I'll give you a king. You can have you can have one, even though I'm supposed to be your king, but I'll, I'll give you a king." It's kind of like the old, if everyone else is jumping off a cliff, would you do it, basically? And and then finally, God's like, "All right, you know, you can you can you can have have a king." And it's interesting that the the first king is. Um, Described If you're familiar with the story, you likely know a little bit about this, but First Samuel 9, 1 and 2, um, it tells us about Saul, the first king. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zerar, the son of Barakoth, the son of Appiah, of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. One thing that you should notice right away is that, I mean, Saul's described as a handsome person, and a head taller than everybody else. Like this is basically like this is like a, a good-looking person who like when, when he comes in the room, like heads turn around because his, his head is taller than everybody. He's, he's taller. Like he's 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 strapping. He is like physically like in, in outward appearance what you would want from a king or from a leader. Like this is who you would expect to be chosen. And so Saul is chosen, but what's interesting is I think this, this line ends up being somewhat haunting because it, the way that he's described here is like, well, he's just a little bit better than everybody else. And then it's like Saul is trying to protect that as he continues to rule. And it's like he's, you know he's been described as a head taller and, and very handsome, but like slowly, eventually, you're not necessarily going to be defined like that anymore. Sometimes you're going to find someone who's a little bit taller, who we find in the story of Saul, Right? Sometimes eventually your, your looks are going to fail you. They have this saying in athletics that father time is undefeated. And it's true. You might be the handsomest dude for a while, but eventually like you're not going to be that great looking anymore perhaps. No one's going to walk in the room and say, "Hey, look at Saul, he looks amazing." So you see this introduction of him, and I think it introduces his personality in some ways that he has this look, and it's like you know he's taller than everybody else he's, he's really important, he's significant, and then that in some ways is the way that he lives, and eventually he falls out of favor with God, and what ends up really destroying him is his jealousy and David, who is the next king, ends up slaying Goliath, and they come home singing a song in First Samuel chapter 18, verses 6-9. through 9. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry, this refrain, this refrain uh, displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And then this line, which I think we all need to think about, and from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. So they come back and are singing this amazing song, and really, Saul probably should just like stay in his lane, and recognize that there's some praise there. You know, you've killed thousands. That's a lot, right? That's enough. You should be like, wow, good job me. You know, I've killed thousands. There's there's a little bit of celebration going on here, but like they're also crediting David with a whole lot more, and oftentimes our, our problem comes from just not like staying in like who we're supposed to be and who we're called to be, not really just saying, okay, this is who God has called me to be for this season of life, and perhaps it's frustrating and it's hard, so I'm just going to, like, complain about it. Instead of just saying, this is who God has called me to be. It's so much of life, I think, in our world is lived with comparison. Like, we just constantly are, like, comparing ourselves to others and comparing ourselves to everything that's happening. Um, Mandy sent me a great text uh, this week um, that had the weather from the Bakersfield, California, which is pretty awesome. It's hard for you to read, perhaps, but... Um, <laughs> It, it says, heaven help Bakersfield, because they made a typo and said Bakersfield is 704. Uh, uh, pretty much every time, like especially LA people, when, when we see what the weather is in Bakersfield, we think, thank God I'm not in Bakersfield. But especially then, it's like, whoa, 704. And then the comment is great, but it's a dry heat, because uh, that's, what, that's what Bakersfield people say. And I think how so much of life, like even that, you know, every single day you'll see the weather come up, and you like look at the weather in your place, and especially since we live in a place that generally has better weather than some of the places around us, we think, "Wow, thank God I'm not there." That's just the way that we're kind of trained to think, and the way that we that we see the world. And the problem then is when someone starts to catch up to us, or when the power starts to be transferred. Or when someone is doing a job better than us. And that line should mess with all of us that from that time on, Saul kept a close eye. And the problem for him and the problem for us is the issue isn't that Saul should keep a close eye on David, Saul should be keeping a close eye on his jealousy. That's the problem because when we are constantly defining ourselves against someone else, when we're constantly thinking of kind of this grass is always greener mentality and this understanding, it's so easy to start to think of joy as a limited resource and to think there's not enough joy in this world for that person to have their joy and then for me to have joy too. And we start to just try and grab for it instead of receiving it as a gift. And we start to look, and whoever it is that you look at that's like more famous or more successful or or more handsome or more whatever, you can just fill in all these blanks. Whoever it is that you would say is more of what it is that you're desiring, it's easy for you to keep a close eye instead of actually being honest and saying, "I, I have something that I need to deal with here eventually, we see that David comes to the throne. And the same thing trips him up. In the spring, at the time when kings were to go off to war, which is a warning sign, because David is a king at this point. When the kings are supposed to be going off to war, where's David? He's at home. So, he's not doing what he probably should be doing. How many times are we putting ourselves in situations like this where it's like, anybody want to sin with me? You know, like, I'm kind of hanging out here. Like, I'm hanging out where I know I shouldn't be, but, like, this is David just kind of hanging out where he's not supposed to be. David sent Joab out with the king's man and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Amorites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. And at this point, David has a choice. He could say, wow, good for Uriah. <laughs> say, she's, she's beautiful. Like, I'm, I'm happy for that guy. But instead, he goes down a different path, one that involves an affair and then an attempted cover-up an affair that turns into murder, and just that's how often our lives are. We just kind of keep throwing things at things to try and solve our problems. But as you see the, these stories, as you see Saul and, and then David, I, I just can't help but think of these are people who, like, we would say, like, have it all, right? And they're kings, they're important, they have wealth, they have power, and even the kings are looking for just a little bit more. And instead of just saying, no, I've, I've been called to be the king over Israel, like this is what I'm supposed to do, this is what I'm going to continue doing, this is what I'm going to stay at, I'm just going to watch my appetites and I'm going to stand back and say, man, good for Uriah. Or wow, good for David. We keep an eye on somebody else instead of watching over our jealousy. And it's so important for us to recognize that this is just going to continue to create discontentment in us. And you're going to think about being married to somebody else. You're going to be thinking about having another job. You're going to be thinking about having kids who actually listen to you. Instead of actually paying attention, to the blessing of the life that you have right in front of you. We used to talk about keeping up with the Joneses. And I wish it was just keeping up with the Joneses today, right? Because it used to be just like, hey, you know, the, the Jones family in your neighborhood got a new car or something. You're like, oh, that's pretty cool, but I kind of don't like that about him because now he has a new car. But now we don't just keep up with the Joneses. We keep up with everybody we've ever known. And not only, like, is it people that we somewhat know and we're like, how did... That guy was, like, failing out of chemistry class. How does he have, like, a, he started his own business? That doesn't make any sense. And it's not just them. We, like, try to keep up with celebrities, right, who have, like, the, the manicured pictures to make everything look perfect because, like, these things are just scrolling around our lives all the time. And it just creates just this low hum of discontentment. And we try to, like, grab hold of it and try to take control. I actually was listening to an interview on, on the radio driving over here this morning um, with an educator, and he was talking about how, like, they've now come up with a new term. Um, there used to be the term helicopter parent, which you might be familiar with. Maybe you are one. If so, confess and give up your life and move, move forward. But a helicopter parent is like a parent that is a little bit too involved, perhaps, like just not really letting, letting go of their kids, and um, they're not really allowing them to go and, and be their kids. And this educator was saying, yeah, helicopter parent is kind of the, the old term now. Um, what what we now call it is lawnmower parenting, which is like basically like I'm just pushing forward. I'm doing all the work, um, and I'm going to make sure that my kid is like figuring this out because I'm the one who's holding this. At least with the helicopter, you're like hovering over. But he said we're seeing it way worse because we all want our kids to succeed, and it matters to us. We can make it an idol if we're not careful. God calls us to look at our lives and work hard and think about how we can be a blessing in our world, but to recognize the gift of what we have and not live with this constant sense of the grass is greener on the other side. Because there's really three outcomes to how we could live. First, you could want something so bad but just die chasing it. Never actually fulfill it. Or you could get it and realize that it doesn't satisfy you. Or you could learn to trust in your Heavenly Father. Say, yeah, you know, I I do want to work hard. I want to accomplish things in in my life and in my world. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to look to the right and to the left to try and get like my sense of satisfaction or self-worth. I'm going to say, God, you are enough for me. I'm going to put trust in you and who you are. Ultimately, would we be willing to ask and answer that question, like what is it that I really want out of life? What do you really like deep down want? And are the, is the way that you're living like putting you on a trajectory for the things that you want? I was talking with, with a, a friend of mine um, who I, I've grown up with. I grew up in this area, so I am still stay in contact with him. He's, he, he's not a Christian, and um, he has, he's around my age, and he has definitely lived his life partying like a rock star, if you're going to put a term on it. And um, he has like, kind of live, lived how he's, he's wanted to live, and he was um, having a conversation with me, and he's like, man, kind of cool seeing you as a dad. And I said, yeah, it's still weird to me too, but um, he said, that's kind of cool. And he's like, I I think I'm getting to a point that I want kids. But I don't know that I can trust myself to settle down. So often I think we're just living for like whatever is exciting in a given moment. And we can just go from thing to thing to thing and not think what is the trajectory of this? Where is this going? Because if you just go from place to place to place trying to make the grass greener in every single moment, eventually you're going to end up with some brown grass and wondering, why is this so brown? Instead of truly just asking yourself, who is God calling me to be? And this doesn't mean that you don't like strive for things in your life that you don't try to become that person or try to work hard, but you don't make those things an idol. Like if you want to get married someday and you're not right now, maybe you just think, okay, what is it about marriage that I really want? Is it companionship? Is it friendship? Like what is it that I want out of marriage? Let me try to work on that now. Let me cultivate that in my life to the ability that I can right now. Or maybe one day you want your finances to be a little bit more in order. Then stop spending so much on credit cards right now. Maybe you really, really want to be like a, a good dad and you want to um, like have your, your grandchildren recognize you and, and revere you for the dad that you are. Then Pay attention is the life that you're living right now helping you to eventually become the person that you want to be? What do you really want? Because it's so easy to just go from thing to thing, chasing after love like we're chasing after those new nylons. And maybe recognize that we are defined by something different. The worship team can come up. We're going to sing... Uh, the song, Who You Say I Am. And I hope that this song helps to remind us that we are identified by Jesus and our relationship with Jesus. And if we allow ourselves more and more to live into that reality and ask God truly who God says we are, then I think ultimately that puts us in a better place where we're not constantly looking to the right and the left, And again, this can happen to kings. So it can definitely happen to all of us. What would it look like for you to understand that your identity in Christ is truly the most important thing? Because you could live your entire life chasing after something and never get it. Or you could get it and realize it wasn't all that worth it. Or you could practice every single day Trusting in your heavenly Father and believing in who he says that you are. Let's stand and worship together.